Is that better? Yeah. All right. Can you hear me, Karen? <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. Turn your Bibles to the New Testament Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Those of you who come on Sunday evening, uh, uh, we remember that in my preaching through the Gospel of John, that I'm actually in John chapter 5. I have one more uh, sermon on a, a five-part uh, series on uh, John 5 on the uh, confessing the deity of Christ. But this morning, rather than to jump back into a series that I already started since it's Sunday morning, I'm going to move on to John chapter 6. So if you'll turn to chapter 6. It is important, um, however, to remember where we're at in the Gospel of John because you'll see that John 6 begins with after this or after these things. So John is connecting what he's saying here with the previous part of the book. So remember that the Apostle John started out with the great uh, declaration that Jesus Christ is God. He's equal with God, he's the creator, and this creator, this divine Logos in time became man and dwelt among us. And John said that when he dwelt among them there in Galilee, that he showed them his glory. That is, he showed his disciples the glory of his deity. And he did that by miracles that he performed. And so John is putting together a series of miracles that he's giving us in his gospel here that demonstrate that Jesus Christ is indeed divine, that he is God, totally equal with the Father. So far, uh, John has uh, told us about the water that was turned to wine. Remember that Jesus was in Cana of Galilee at a wedding and they ran out of wine and so Jesus had them get together six water pots, pitchers, uh, each containing 20 to 30 gallons and he told them to fill the pitchers with water and then to take some of that to the head waiter at the wedding and when he tasted it, it was the best wine that he had ever tasted. The next miracle that, G, that John tells us about is the healing of a son, a man's son, who was dying. So this official, Jesus again was in Cana of Galilee, and this official heard that Jesus was there. And so he came to, Galilee, to Cana, and he asked Jesus to come home with him so he could heal his son who was dying. And Jesus simply said to him, do you remember? go, your son lives. And so as the man was going home, his servant met him on the way and said, your son has recovered. And he, found, and he asked him, what time was it that he recovered? And it was the exact time when Jesus said to him, your son lives. The next miracle was the healing of a man who was an invalid who was laying by the sheep gate pool in Jerusalem. And you remember that he was an invalid for 38 years. Can you imagine that? 38 years he had been paralyzed. And Jesus simply said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the man got up, took his bed and walked. So 
again and again with many other miracles, not just those, but many miracles, Jesus was, was demonstrating that he was indeed divine, the Son of God. And then in chapter 5, in part of chapter 5, Jesus not only has he shown them by his miracles that he's God, but he begins to teach them what that means, to really believe and confess that he is God. And we've seen in chapter 5 that if you want to really honor God, you must confess the deity of Jesus Christ. If you really have saving faith and eternal life, you confess that Jesus is God. If you want to escape eternal punishment, you must believe that Jesus is God. If you want to truly be biblical, go by what the Bible says, you must confess the deity of Jesus Christ. So the disciples have seen the demonstrations of his deity. They've heard the teaching about his deity. And now it's time for a test. It's time for chapter 6. In fact, in chapter 6, there are three tests that test the faith of the disciples. The reason that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to include them in Scripture is for us. Because it's not just the disciples that get tested, it's every one of us, as my sermon title says everyone takes the tests everyone so the first so this morning i'm going to mainly look at the first one which is the feeding of the five thousand but i want you to at least see the other two so the feeding of the five thousand is going to be in verses uh, one through fifteen uh, that's an impossible challenge that the disciples face. The second one is going to be the uh, when Jesus walks on the stormy water. That's an irresistible fear that they face, fear. And then in verses 22 to 71, the disciples encounter an incomprehensible disappointment when Jesus says no and does something that is greatly disappointing to them. So I'm going to read the first two and just parts of the third one because it's rather lengthy. So let's begin in verse 1 and follow along as I read. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to what? To test him. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. 
Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, sat down about 5,000 in number. And then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves uh, left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and coming near the boat, they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was near there, not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? Can you imagine they're asking him this after the previous day? What sign do you do? Well, you know what they wanted, right? Jesus knew they just wanted food. So, uh, uh, so that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now let's skip over to verse 60. And by the way, Jesus never did what they asked him to do. They were asking him for food. He never gave it to them. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, 
Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who, were, who did not believe and who, it would, who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. May God bless the reading of his word. So wow, you know, bam, 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 three right in a row, tests uh, for the disciples. Um, sometimes for us, it's just one circumstance of life that brings all three of those tests, right? An impossible challenge, a fear that strikes in our hearts, a disappointment. I don't like tests. <laughs> I, uh, my guess is that if you would be honest, that some of you would probably say you even hate tests. But everyone takes the tests. In fact, you may be in the middle of one right now. If you are a Christian, you will be tested. Doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are. Doesn't matter if you're the preacher or somebody important. If you're a Christian, you will be tested. That's what Rick read earlier, right? In that passage in uh, 1 Peter, it said, though now for a little while, what's the little while? In the context, it's now, while this life on earth lasts, we're going to be tested. For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, than it goes on. So Peter wrote that. Peter was there that day when Jesus fed the 5,000. He experienced this test. He's going to say later in that same book in 1 Peter, he's going to say this. He's going to say, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Everyone takes the test. Don't be surprised. In other words, be prepared. James, I think, takes it a step even further. James says this in James 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And he goes on. If you were reading that verse in the original Greek, you would see that James puts the all joy at the beginning. He's emphasizing the all joy part. 
You would read, all joy, consider it when you encounter various trials. All joy. Word to count it, all joy, count it, that word count is kind of an accounting term. It means to add up, do the math. In other words, if you were to put together all the truth that God gives us about trials, you would equal, you would calculate that it's what? All joy. It's all joy. So, my question is, how do we get from not liking, even hating tests to all joy? Well, we need John chapter 6, because that's where we're going to find some of the truth that we can add up to equal all joy. To get from hating tests and to not being surprised, to being prepared for, to being prepared and counting it all joy, we have some truth in John 6. So let's consider the feeding of the 5,000 and this test of the impossible challenge. I want you to see three things as we go through this miracle. I want you to see the magnitude of the challenge. It is really incredible. I want you to see the puniness of the disciples' resources, which was really, really puny. And I want you to see the greatness of Jesus. So keep those three things in mind. Uh, this is a very important miracle. I say that for one reason, because this is the only miracle besides the resurrection that all four gospel writers record. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four, record this miracle. John is the last one to write, and John assumes that you know what the others wrote. Now, I assume that you probably didn't read those other accounts this morning, so I'll give you a little bit of the background and fill in some of the pieces. So number one, you know, he starts out saying, after this, well, after what? What's the time of this happening? This is a time in the ministry of Jesus when Jesus' popularity is at its height. I mean, Jesus has been performing miracles day after day, and the crowds are growing larger and larger, following Jesus, bringing people to him to be healed, watching the miracles. It's a great time of popularity for disciples and Jesus. You uh, see that in verse 2, where it says, A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Okay, this is a time of ministry that's very popular. Not going to last long. It's going to turn at the end of chapter 6 here. But for now, it's very popular. It's an exciting time and a busy time for the twelve. Uh, so busy, in fact, that disciples didn't have time to eat and to rest. They were exhausted. It was so busy. And lastly, it was a time of grief. John the Baptist had just been beheaded by Herod. And so when John says in verse 1 that they are going to the other side, okay, they've been in Capernaum in Galilee in this very popular, busy time of ministry, and now they're going to go to the other side, to a desolate area on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're going there 
because of the grief of losing John the Baptist, and they're going there for a time of rest. The problem is, when they made their escape early that morning, they weren't stealthy enough, and somebody saw them and figured out where they were going. So by the time they got to the other side by boat, the crowd had already beat them there by foot. So when they landed on shore, they came upon the large crowd again, as it says in verse 2. They were already there. They had beat them there. So Jesus spends, that and his disciples, they spend that day teaching and healing the people. And that's where John picks it up in verse 3. It's the end of the day. It's late. And verse 3 says that Jesus went on the, up on the mountain there and sat down with his disciples. So he went up. Somehow they got a break from the crowd. And they went up on the mountainside and they sat down to rest. The disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, this is Matthew 14, 15, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now listen to what Jesus says to that. And this will show you the magnitude of the challenge. Jesus said to them, this is Matthew 14, 16, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. I wish someone had recorded with their cell phone that scene. Can you imagine the disciples' faces when they heard that? They must have looked at Jesus and then looked at the crowd, which is now a pro coming toward them. Big crowd, a large crowd. Then they looked at each other. And then they probably looked back at Jesus with that look that says, are you serious? You got to be kidding, right? Of course, Jesus knew what they were thinking. The magnitude of the challenge can be seen by the large crowd. Okay, how big was the crowd? Okay, if you look at verse 10, you'll see a little bit of an idea of how big that crowd was, all right? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there's much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So there were 5,000 men. We know that there was children, so they were obviously women too. So if you count all the women and children, what do you got? 10,000 at least? Maybe more? So the large crowd shows you the magnitude of the challenge to feed them, that they had to feed them. The other thing that shows you the, the uh, uh, magnitude is that it's late. It's now late. We read that in Matthew. The day is over. It's time to eat. There's no time to prepare food, to get food. There's no um, Chick-fil-A around the corner. And then the location shows you the magnitude of the, of the challenge. What does it say about the location? It was a desolate place. 
no natural resource, nothing to get to feed the five to 10,000 people. So Jesus, do you realize what you're asking? He's asking the impossible, isn't he? For 12 disciples with no resources to feed 5,000. And he does the same thing to us. The challenges that he puts into our lives are impossible. It may be a financial challenge. It could be a health challenge. Some of you may be facing some challenge even today that is a test of your faith. It could be a health challenge. It could be a relationship challenge, a work challenge, <clears throat> living after the, life, the uh, death of a loved one. I'm finding that getting old is an impossible challenge, getting older. <clears throat> God tests us with impossible challenges. Now, I want you to look at the puniness of their resources, all right? So I think Jesus knew that Philip was the the one the guy with the personality who's starting to calculate in his mind what it's going to take, you know, to feed these thousands of people. And so in verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread? so that these people may eat. Philip has an answer, sorta. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for them to eat even a little, to get even a little. So I think we heard in Sunday school that a denarius is uh, a laborer's daily wage, a common laborer's daily wage. So. Where Philip came up with the 200, I'm not sure. It could be that that's how much they could come up with. Okay, we know that they had a, a bag of money, right? Judas was in charge of it. So maybe he knew they had 200 denarii and that wouldn't even make a dent in it. One of the disciples in verse eight, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So, you know, some people who uh, study the book of John like to count miracles. How many miracles does John record? Well, if you're gonna count miracles, I think this has got to count, right? How in the world did this boy get to the end of the day and his lunch has not been eaten yet. So the, it says, you know, the five loaves, five barley loaves, that's not like a loaf of bread like we think of a loaf, big loaf of bread. That's biscuits, basically. He has five biscuits and two little fish, enough food for one boy, one lad, one little boy for one day. That's what they got. They got money, which won't feed anybody, a little bit, and they got food for one boy for one day. Is that puny resources for what? 
the puniness of our resources, little money, not enough, little food, not enough. It's always not enough. When God tests us, it's never, we never have enough. For the magnitude of the challenge, the large crowd, the late time, the location. So we usually do what Peter and, and or Philip and Andrew usually did. We usually focus on the magnitude of the challenge and the puniness of our resources. And we come up with what? I can't do this. I can't. Instead, we should focus on the greatness of Jesus. So what's the correct answer to Philip's question, or Jesus' question to Philip? Where are we going to get enough money? Where are we going to buy food to feed all these people? What's the answer to that? The answer is... We can't buy it. What we need can only come from Jesus Christ. And he can supply it. He is that great. So I want you to watch him do it as we look at, start in verse 10. This is what Jesus did. He said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, so much, so, so much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled up 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So I want us to look at the greatness of Jesus, and I want you to see four things about the greatness of Jesus. Number one, it's in verse six. A couple of them in verse six, actually. This is after Jesus had asked Philip, where are we gonna get, where are we gonna buy bread for so many people? And John gives this little insight into the thinking of what was going on in Jesus' mind. He says, he, Jesus, said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Isn't that great? First of all, Jesus knew. Jesus, we know, because John has been teaching us from chapter 1, is God. That means he knows everything. He is omniscient. His knowledge is infinite. His knowledge is perfect. His knowledge is unchangeable, and his knowledge is eternal. He knows exactly what the test is. He knows exactly what the disciples don't have. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows how long the test is going to last. He knows how, long, how it's going to end. He knows everything in between. He knows it all. He knows everything perfectly. Jesus knows everything. He knows it all. The second thing you see in that verse is it doesn't just say that Jesus knows, right? What does it say? Verse 6. 
Jesus, he himself, knew what he was going to do. Okay, it's not just that Jesus knew the future. He knew what was going to happen. No, it's saying that he's the one who was going to make it happen. He's the one who is sovereignly in control. So Jesus is in control of all. Not only does he know it all, but he is in control of it all. His sovereign control is infinite, perfect, it's unchangeable, it's eternal, and nothing that is happening in your life, in your trial, is outside his knowledge or his control. It's all from him. Every detail, every moment is who's doing. It's his doing. I think the most important thing, if you take nothing out, if you remember nothing else, at least remember that point, all right? Because what it's telling us what we need to know when we face a trial is that the trial is coming from Jesus, okay? It's not bad luck, it's not bad karma, it's not fate, it's not the result of the wickedness of man or the power of Satan. Everything that comes into our life is under his control. He brings it every single test. Whatever test you're facing today, if it's an impossible challenge, an irresistible fear, or a disappointment, it has come to you from him. He's in control of it all. The third thing about the greatness of Jesus that I think we need to know, look at verse four. Okay, so this is at the end of the day. Jesus goes up on the mountain, verse 3, with his disciples. They sit down for a little break. And John puts in this verse, 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. What's that verse have to do with anything? Just like it's inserted in there. How does it fit? Okay, so some of you are thinking, well, later, Jesus is going to say that he's the bread of life. Okay, well, that's later. But now, why put it now? It's because I think John is telling us what's in the heart of Jesus. Jesus, always on the front of his mind, always in his heart, was what he was going to do on Calvary. Because he was going to be the real Passover lamb. And he loves us that much that he laid down his life for us as a Passover lamb. And every single trial that comes into our life comes from that same Jesus. And his love for us, when a trial comes, is exactly the same as when he was hanging on the cross for us.
says that he lifted up in the next verse, he lifted up his eyes. When you read that in Matthew, it says the, he lifted up his eyes and he had compassion on the crowd. That compassion came from Calvary love. And the trials that come to our, into our lives comes from Calvary love. Jesus loves us <clears throat> infinitely, perfectly, unchangeably, eternally. He loves us. And everything he does comes from that. So, what does he do? <laughs> Look at what he did. Remember what he did? If one word to help you to remember the power of Jesus and what he did is the word leftovers. John seems to emphasize that <clears throat> after he performed this miracle is leftovers. I think he says at least two times that he sent him out to get the leftovers. Why in the world would you go pick, the, pick up partially eaten bread? <laughs> leftovers. It's because Jesus is drawing a contrast between the puniness of our resources and the greatness of what he can do because the puniness of our resources is always not enough, too little. Jesus is always more than enough. He is more than enough. His power is infinite. It is eternal. It is perfect. It's unchangeable. He can do everything and there's always leftover power because it's infinite. He can do it all. So I usually tend to, like you do probably, focus on the magnitude of the challenge and the puniness of the resource instead of Jesus, that he loves us infinitely, he knows us perfectly, he's in control, sovereign over everything, and he is omnipotent. The greatness of Jesus is the answer to every trial. To this one, this is the answer to the other two in this chapter, the sudden storm that comes on the disciples when they're out in the Sea of Galilee and cast fear into their hearts. It's the greatness of Jesus. Jesus shows up and calms the storm and calms their hearts. The disappointing time that happens at the end of the chapter when Jesus refuses to give the crowds what they want and they begin to turn on him even some of the disciples, not the 12, but the other disciples, and the 12 are even tempted to. Jesus said, are you going to leave me too? Disappointment? Jesus is the answer because only Jesus satisfies. Not that all the things that we want, that we think we need, but it's Jesus himself because he himself is the bread of life that satisfies the longings of our soul. So, how do you think the disciples did on their test? I want you to look at verse 11 again. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Okay, now remember I tell you that, told you that 
John's assuming you know what the other gospel writers wrote, okay? To fill in how Jesus did that, he gave thanks, he, he broke the loaves and the fish, and Matthew tells us that he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples distributed them to the 5,000 plus. Now again, I wish I had somebody record that on their cell phone. Can you imagine Peter standing there and Jesus gives thanks? So he's got five biscuits, breaks them up into 12 pieces somehow, and two fish that he breaks up in 12 and gives them. So Peter's standing there with a little piece of biscuit and a little piece of fish. Can you imagine? And you know what the disciples did? They started walking toward the crowd and giving it to the crowd. That's living by faith. When we can't see the answer, we don't know the answer, we don't, and we just obey. We move forward into the trial that God has given us But with Jesus makes all the difference. So it's very clear Jesus was not giving them this test to try to get them to fail, was he? He didn't want them to fail. He didn't give them the test to give them a hard time to make them suffer. Not at all. Uh, he, he didn't even give them the test so that he could find out how strong their faith was. Okay, think about it. Jesus already knew everything about those disciples. He knew exactly how strong their faith was or how weak their faith was. He was not giving this test so he could find that out. He was giving this test to them so that they could see his glory so that their faith would grow even more and ultimately so that they would give him honor and glory by obeying and doing what he had asked. They did glorify God in doing that. Let me read that first Peter again. In this you rejoice, okay, our inheritance in heaven. Yeah, we rejoice in that. Though now for a little while, if necessary, we've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, why? Do we hate tests? Uh, there's two reasons, I think. One is we haven't done the math. Hopefully today we've done some of that math. We've counted up the truth that God gives us about tests that will help us to conclude that it's all joy. Second, thing is, <clears throat> second reason is, and this is true too often of myself, that we prefer an easy life.
to growing and honoring and glorifying God. So let's repent of that. Let's reject that way of thinking. And let's be like the saints of old who were tested and they were tested and they tested and they live by faith. They live by faith in the loving, omniscient, omniscient, sovereign, omnipotent God. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith. That's what he's doing. He started it and he's perfecting it who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a great God, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we fix our eyes on his greatness, and may we, with James, count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds that test our faith. Amen.